All right, opening your Bibles this morning to the book of Luke, chapter number 23. Luke, chapter number 23. And it's good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. If you're glad that you're here, say amen. amen. What a blessing it is to be with God's people. Uh, what an encouragement it is to be in the house of the Lord. Luke chapter number 23 this morning. While you're turning there, I want to read a passage of Scripture to you. And I believe it will set a tone for the message this morning. Uh, the passage deals with the parable of the sower and of the seed. You remember, I'm sure, when Christ told the parable about the sower that went forth and sowed the seed. It fell on four different types of ground. Now, I want to read to you in, in Luke chapter 8 and verse 12. You don't have to turn there, just one verse. The Word of God says, Those by the wayside are they that hear. Then cometh the devil, and taketh away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. Now, how many of you know this morning that once a person gets saved, they're eternally saved? you know that? And as we rightly divide the word of truth, we understand that just because the seed falls on the ground, that doesn't mean that it takes root. Four different types of responses or types of ground are spoken of in Luke chapter number 8. One of these is the wayside ground. Commentators would tell you, and we'll get to preaching here in a moment, but I want to set the tone for the message. Commentators would tell you that the wayside uh, was that area that had been trampled down, that had been off-trodden upon, well-traveled, in which it is difficult for the seed to take root. The Bible describes people who have heard everything, heard it plenty of times, heard it so much that it seems difficult for the gospel to penetrate their hearts. But I'm thankful that God can do a work in people like that, aren't you? My greatest fear is that our churches, and I don't know if this is true about ours, maybe, I suppose only the uh, judgment seat of Christ will tell us when we arrive there, but I, I, one of my greatest fear is that our churches are full of wayside people. People that have heard the gospel and heard the gospel and heard the gospel. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying the world is saturated with the gospel. There's plenty of people that have never heard the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I'm afraid that many times our churches are full of people that have never come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, but they could recite to you the gospel front ways, back ways, sideways, in every way, that you could imagine. They are wayside people. And they think because they've heard it a bunch that that's enough. I'll have you know that uh, salvation doesn't come by osmosis. Amen? Salvation doesn't come by just being in the vicinity of the preaching of the gospel. You must receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So this morning in Luke chapter number 23, I want to preach about a man that I believe that this had somewhat happened to. And there's a phrase that is of great interest to me. Let's begin reading in verse number 1. The Word of God says, And the whole multitude of them arose and led him unto Pilate. Now, you know where we're at just by that one verse. We're at the crucifixion scene. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, Thou sayest it. Then said Pilate to the chief priests and to the people, I find no fault in this man. And they were the more fierce, saying, He stirreth up the people, teaching throughout all Jewry, beginning from Galilee to this place. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked whether the men were Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged unto Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was at Jerusalem at that time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceeding glad. Now, not for the right reasons. For he was desirous to see him of a long season, because he had heard many things of him, and he hoped to have seen some miracle done by him. Then he questioned with him in many words, but he answered him nothing. Can I pause there and just say this? This is the only man that Christ wouldn't speak to. You say, why wouldn't Christ speak to him? Because the Lord had already given him a voice in the person of John the Baptist. And he took his life. And let me say that I, I, I'm thankful that any time we're under conviction, any time that the Word of God has penetrated our hearts, I'm glad we have the opportunity to be saved. But you may find this, that if you push God away and push Him away and push Him away, do everything you can to snuff out the voice of God in your life, 
you may find a time when you look for the voice of God and can't find it. He wants to hear something from Jesus, but Jesus has nothing to say to him. He had already rejected John. It says in verse number 10, And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. And Herod with his men of war set him at naught and mocked him and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him again to Pilate. In the same day, Pilate and Herod were made friends together, for before they were at enmity between themselves. And Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, said unto them, Ye have brought this man unto me as one that perverteth the people. Behold, I have examined him before you, have, I having examined him before you, have found no fault in this man, touching those things whereof ye accuse him. No, nor yet Herod, for I sent you to him. Lo, nothing worthy of death is done unto him. I will therefore chastise him and release him. For of necessity he must release one unto them at the feast. And they cried out all at once, saying, Away with this man, and release unto us Barabbas, who for a certain sedition made in the city and for murder was cast into prison. Pilate, therefore willing to release Jesus, spake again to them. But they cried, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And he said unto them the third time, Why? What evil hath he done? I have found no cause of death in him. I'll therefore let, uh, chastise him and let him go. And they were instant with loud voices, requiring that he might be crucified. And the voices of them and of the chief priests prevailed. And Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they required. And he released unto them that for sedition and murder was cast into prison, whom they had desired, but he delivered Jesus to their will. Let's read verse 23 once more, and I want to take notice of a phrase that's used. The Bible says, And they were instant with loud voices, requiring that he might be crucified. Notice this, And the voices of them and of the chief priests prevailed. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this privilege, this honor, and this opportunity to stand in your pulpit. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to the hearts of your people. Lord, speak to the hearts of those that are not your people this morning. Lord, if there's any amongst us that are lost and undone, alienated from the fellowship of your Son, Jesus Christ, estranged from salvation, pray that today, before it's everlasting too late, you would convict their hearts. I pray and I ask that they would respond in obedience, that they would accept your Son. Lord, bless your people and bless your word to our hearts. We love you. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. I want you to notice again the phrase at the end of verse 23. The Bible says, "...and the voices of them and of the chief priests prevail." I want to preach to you for a few moments this morning on the thought that the voices prevailed. Do you know we live in a time where there's lots of voices? Turn on the TV sometime, you'll hear lots of voices. If you tuned in to the National Prayer Breakfast, you heard lots of voices. Let me just say this. I'm sure I wouldn't cross every T and dot every I with any race car driver. Amen. Uh, but I'm thankful somebody gave the gospel to the president, aren't you? Because he needs to hear it. He needs to be born again. You say, well, you have no right to say that, preacher. Well, by his own testimony, he has not accepted the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to pray for him. Pray for his salvation. Pray for the salvation. Let me say this, that you'll go a lot further complaining to God about them than complaining to somebody else about them. We ought to pray for our leaders. There's lots of voices in the world that we live in today. Why, you can find religion of any type, of any flavor, of any, uh, uh, of any manner that you wish to. But in this world of competing voices, I think there's a grand and great danger that we be drawn away from the simplicity that is in Christ. And of course, there is a great danger for the sinner that in the midst of all the voices, that a voice other than the true voice would prevail in their hearts and in their minds. Pilate had a miraculous opportunity. Do you understand? And I don't mean the opportunity to let Jesus go. Of course, he had that opportunity. I'm thankful he didn't. I'm thankful that Christ went to the cross. I wouldn't be here if he hadn't gone to the cross. But I mean that Pilate is standing here face to face with the truth. Pilate is standing face to face with the Son of God in the shadow of the cross of Calvary. And he turns away and he rejects the Savior. You say, preacher, how tragic. But it's even more tragic than you would imagine. There's a, ver a verse that interests me in the book of Acts. You don't have to turn. I'll read it to you. It's Acts 3.13. 
Listen to what it says about Pilate. The Bible says, The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate. Now listen to this. When he was determined to let him go. The Bible teaches us that Pilate had his mind made up about Jesus Christ. Can I ask you something this morning to every single person in this room? Is your mind made up about Jesus Christ? Now, that's really what it comes down to. Not whether you've been baptized. I believe in baptism. It's it's an ordinance of the New Testament church. Something that a believer, someone that has been born again, ought to do and should do in obedience to the Word of God. But I'm not asking if you've been baptized today. There's people been baptized so many times that they're waterlogged and they're still on their way to hell. I'm not asking you if you're baptized this morning. I'm asking you if you made your mind up about Jesus Christ. I'm not asking you if you're a church member this morning. I believe in church membership. I'm a member of a church. Amen? It's just a real thing. Whenever I, I went, I, we didn't mail it off whenever I, you know, I, I came to Wall Ridge. I mean, there was no sense in it. I, and I went to the associate pastor at the church where, where I had been the youth pastor. What a surreal feeling to be standing there getting your church letter. And, and he says, why? And you say, well, I'm going to pastor there. I probably need to belong there. Amen? I believe in church membership. I believe you ought to be a church member. I believe God uh, plants every believer in a Bible-believing church. And I believe if you got the opportunity to go to one, if you're under the sound of my voice, I don't mean it in arrogance, I don't mean it to be a braggart, but you've got a Bible-believing church, then you ought to be a member of a Bible-believing church. I'm not asking you if you're a church member this morning. I'm asking you, have you made your mind up about Jesus Christ? On and on we could go. I'm not asking you if you've done good works. I'm asking you if you've made your mind up about Jesus Christ. I'm not asking you if you're a well-liked person. I'm asking you if you've made your mind up about Jesus Christ. Have you accepted Christ as your personal Savior this morning? You say, preacher, I've been saved 25 years. This message isn't for me. Listen to me this morning, brother. Then you pray for whoever it is for. Because in a group this size, it certainly will not be a stretch of the imagination. Believe there might be somebody in this room in need of Christ's salvation. Pilate is a man who's heard many things. Pilate is a man, though he's not well educated in the matters of of Judaism, Pilate, as a public official, no doubt he had traveled, he had been around, he had heard many things. There face to face with Jesus Christ, his mind is made up, he knows what he's going to do, but then something changes. The Bible tells us, you know, you can see it in Pilate's actions. Did you notice it when we read in our text? I'm not sure which verse it's in. You can find it there. It says that Pilate went to them the third time. Pilate was trying to do everything he can. Now, Pilate had it within his authority to release Jesus. Can I say this? There's not a person in here that salvation is too hard for you. Oh, let me say it again. I, I don't, I, I don't, that must have went out that door and not got back there any. There's not a person in here that salvation is too hard for you. You have it within your capacity to accept Christ. I, I had it with as a ten year old boy. I had it within my capacity to accept Christ. Because it's not about good works, not about uh, church membership, not about baptism, not about being well liked, not about giving money, but merely about confessing ourselves a sinner before the Lord Jesus Christ, and asking Him to forgive us and come into our hearts. Everybody in here, it's within your authority. In fact, you, have the, you are the only person that has the authority to make this decision about your life. Your parents, your uh, children, your spouse, your, uh, your, your siblings, your boss, your co-workers, nobody can make this decision but you. You and you alone have the authority to make this decision about your life. Pilate had the authority to do so. It's not that Pilate couldn't, but all of a sudden, he's got his mind made up. He knows what he's going to do, and the voices start rolling in. And there might be somebody in this room who God has pricked your heart. You know something's missing in your life. You know what is missing in your life. But as God convicts your heart and as your will begins to crumble, all of a sudden the voices start coming in. And pretty soon you do what you've done time and time again. You say, no, just like Pilate did, you wash your hands of it and you turn away. I want to preach to you for a few moments about some things I see in Pilate's life that we've read in this text. I want you to notice them with me. I want you to notice, first off, the caution 
that prepared his heart. There were some things going on in Pilate's life that we can see. God put some things in Pilate's way to prepare him to be face to face with the Savior. And I want to show them to you. You don't have to turn there, but in Matthew 27, we have a parallel account of this. And there's a detail that's mentioned here that's not mentioned in the other Gospels. Listen to this. As Pilate is there at at his judgment seat, and as Christ is before him, listen to what happens. The Bible says, when he was set down on the judgment seat, his wife sent unto him, saying, Have thou nothing to do with that just man? For I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. I want you to notice, first off, the caution of his spouse. Now, some of you are going to say, oh, preacher, what if I don't have a godly spouse? Oh, I don't just mean just a spouse. In Pilate's case, it was his spouse. And certainly, most of us men, we'd be in trouble if God hadn't blessed us with somebody that could straighten us out from time to time. Amen? Well, oh, that was weak, men. Amen? That's a lot better. Let's be honest this morning. We're in the house of God. Let's be honest. That's the truth. It may not be a spouse in your case. In Pilate's case, it was. What I'm saying this morning is God put someone in Pilate's life that could point him the right direction. You know, I'm thankful for the folks that God has put in my life. I think back to before I got saved and, uh, you know, as a 10-year-old boy, I I grew up in church. I grew up in a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching, gospel-preaching church. I grew up in a place where the truth was presented. God put scores of people in my life that were like Pilate's wife was unto him. People that could testify to some things that they had seen. People that could testify to some things that they had heard. And people that could testify to some things that were going to happen if something didn't change. Pilate's wife sends word and says, Listen, you're on dangerous ground aligning yourself against this man. Can I say this morning, if you had somebody in your life that loved you enough to look you square in the eye and say you're on dangerous ground if you die without Christ. You ought to praise God for it. If you've never had anybody in your life that loved you enough to do that, let me this morning love you enough to say that if you die without Christ, you're on dangerous ground. If you're living without Christ, you're on dangerous ground. The sinner is but one missed heartbeat from an eternity in hell. Lost person is but just a moment, just a mishap from an eternity in damnation. Jonathan Edwards said it this way in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He likened the sinner to a spider dangling by a web over the flames of hell. And but just a moment of a flame leaping up and severing that cord, that thin silk, just a moment and he could perish. Let me say that for the sinner today, you're but just moments. But just moments. You say, you don't know what's going to happen, preacher. Yeah, and you don't either. You may have a hundred years. You may not have a hundred seconds. And if God's put someone in your life that loves you enough to tell you the truth, you ought to listen to them. Because God's doing something in your life and He's trying to prepare you for something. I want you to notice, first off, the caution of His spouse. I want you to notice, secondly, the caution of the Scriptures. Now, you can turn here with me in John chapter 18. I want to read to you a few passages of Scripture. We have it briefly related in the text in front of us. Uh, there in uh, verse number 3, where it says, And Pilate asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, Thou sayest it. But that's just a brief synopsis of the interaction that took place. In John chapter 18, look with me at verse number 33 for a more full uh, example and explanation of it. The Bible says this, Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again, and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it thee of me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? In other words, he's saying, Should I know something like that? Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from thence. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Every one that is of the truth heareth my voice. Boy, that's pointed preaching, isn't it? 
Think about it in the context. Pilate is saying, what's the truth? How do we know the truth? He says, if you're of me, you'll know the truth. In other words, he's saying, if you get born again, then you'll know what the truth is. Everybody wants to understand the Bible before they ever get saved. Friend, you might as well try to explain uh, physics to a dead man. You might as well do your best to explain the sunset to a blind man. You might as well do your best uh, to sing a, a beautiful song to a deaf man. You'll never make any ground getting in theological arguments with a spiritually dead person. They've got to be born again before they're really going to understand these truths. And he says to him, if you knew me, if you were of me, then you would have heard my voice. Verse 38, Pilate saith unto him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews and saith unto them, I find in him no fault at all. Once you notice not only the witness of his spouse, but the witness of the Scriptures. You say, wait a minute, preacher, I don't see where Pilate had a Bible in his hand. Well, you must remember there's two words. There's the written word. We have it before us today. I believe that we have it before us today. Don't you believe that? Let me tell you something. I don't believe what I've got is second grade or second rate to any old dusty manuscript sitting on some uh, unsaved, lost, infidel theologian's bookshelf. I believe I have the living, breathing, infallible, uh, inspired, and perfectly preserved Word of God. But then there's also the living Word. We find in John chapter number 1 that the living Word and the written Word, they're synonymous in nature. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. You say, well, that sounds good, and that sounds theological, but what does it mean? Verse 14 says, And the Word was made flesh, and He dwelt amongst us, and we beheld His glory, like as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, Christ was the living Word. The Bible is the written Word. Pilate is not face to face with the written Word, but here he stands face to face with the living Word. There's no greater instrument of conviction, no greater instrument of God's working than the Word of God applied by the Spirit of God. I believe we ought to use every tool that we have. I believe we ought to use every opportunity that we can find. But nothing replaces Bible preaching. Nothing replaces the power of the Word of God. I may say it wrong. I may mess it up. I may not know what you need to hear. But I'm thankful that the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Let me say this, that if we've heard the Word of God, we'll be accountable one day. That's not just a dusty old book that you've heard. This isn't just an old, dead, dry bunch of on white pages that we're preaching this morning, that this is the infallible and supernaturally powerful Word of God. And if you've heard it, you're accountable this morning. You're accountable this morning. There's a witness this morning, and that witness is the Scriptures. Now, I want you to notice a third thing. Now, we're not going to have a text verse for this, but I believe that as we look at this passage, I don't believe it's difficult to see that there was the witness of his spouse and the witness of the Scriptures. But I want you to notice with me the witness of the Spirit. You say, whoa, preacher, what do you mean the witness of the Spirit? We've already said that the Spirit of God uses the Word of God. The book of Ephesians says uh, that, the, uh, the, that the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. He is the one that applies the truth. And let me just ask you a practical question. Do you or do you not see a man that's under conviction in these verses before us. Here is a man that has every reason to treat this just like any other criminal. Here is a man that has every reason to kick this can down the road a little further. Here is a man that has every reason to walk away and say that's under my pay grade and none of my concern. And yet time and time again, he tries to release Jesus and to let him go. Can I put it this way? And I think you'll understand it. He just couldn't get away from it. He just couldn't get away from it. Try as he may, he couldn't get away from it. Make up his mind that he's going to let him go, the Jews won't let him get away from it. Make up his mind that he's going to crucify him, and his wife won't let it get away from him. Everywhere he turns and everything he does, it's like there's a full-on assault in this matter. You say, what is that, preacher? Why would a man this powerful be this conflicted? Because there's something of greater authority than Pilate at work in the passage before us. And can I say this, that when I got saved, man, there's no reason for a 10-year-old boy in his bedroom alone to be worrying about going to hell. Most parents, and I thank God my parents weren't this way, but most parents would have tried to have just calmed me and quieted me. And let me say this, you ought to be sensitive to the working of the Spirit of God in the lives of, of your children and your grandchildren. 
I, I, let me tell you, I, I understand. I understand that a young person has to be of such a mental capacity that they can understand. I'm aware of that. I, I, I don't believe that we're saved by default. I don't believe we're saved by baptism. I don't believe we're saved by heritage. We're saved by a deliberate and distinct choice that we make to accept the Savior. I, I'm aware of that. But let me tell you something. We have allowed this whole age of accountability, false doctrine, false doctrine about a set age of accountability. Let me say it again. A false doctrine about a set and determined age of accountability that you won't find on a single page of the Word of God. You say, what did Jesus say? He said, suffer the little children to come unto me. You say, what do we do? If they want to go to Him, let them go to Him. Don't second guess everything a little child says. I'm aware we have to use wisdom and discretion. I'm aware that it's too easy to manipulate the words and the mind and the heart of a little child. But if they want to go, don't stop them. Let them go. Jesus said, suffer them to come unto me. They wanted to say, hey, Jesus ain't got time for you. Jesus said, you better watch your mouth. (laughs) I've got time for them. Their angel beholds the face of my Father. I've got time for them. Let me tell you something. We've gotten into this place where everybody's conviction has to measure up to our standard. We've gotten to this place where we want we want people... Man, let me tell you something. I, I see it all the time. I see preachers that put barbed wire around their altar because they're afraid of false profession. I, hey, listen, I, 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 you're not going to have any more real professions by making the gospel complicated. That ain't how real professions come. I understand. I know there's easy believism, if you want to call it that. Although I'd say this. I'd say it is easy to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the thing, though. The sinner don't know he needs to until the Spirit of God tells him that he needs to. Until the Word of God convicts him and pricks his heart. He's unaware that he has a need to be saved. Once he knows he needs to be saved, hey, it's the simplicity that's in Christ. I'm thankful, enough, I'm thankful it's simple enough for a ten-year-old boy. I'm thankful it was simple enough for a child. We okay this morning? Well, I'm fe- I don't know how you're feeling, but I'm feeling good this morning. Amen? You go ahead and feel however you want. I'm having fun this morning. I'm saying that the Spirit of God is needed for the conversion of the sinner, but I'm saying this, that we need to get to this place. We need to get to a place where we quit trying to second guess everybody's conviction and rate it. Well, they didn't cry as many tears as I thought they ought to. Well, they didn't, you know, they didn't, they, they didn't, they weren't shaking like they ought to have been shaking. Okay, so if I can hit you in the head with the brick, chances are you're going to cry, you're going to shake, you're going to get emotional, but I ain't done a thing for you, have I? It ain't all measured by the emotional response. I, 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 I'm just merely saying, you can see the Spirit of God at work here. He's not trembling, right? He, he's not trembling like Felix did. He, he, he's, not, he's not shaking, he's not crying out in anger like Festus did. But he's doing what Agrippa did. He's turning away and saying almost. I'm saying this, we see the Spirit of God at work in the life of Pilate. We see that God is convincing him and convicting him of some things. Why else would a man of this authority turn away and choose to go the hard way? Well, that was fun. I don't know if it was fun for you, but it's fun for me. (laughs) I, I see the caution that prepared him. But I want you to notice, secondly, we see the confession that proved some things about him. Pilate makes three statements that are astounding. Three statements that are immensely profound that reveal something about his heart's condition. Look at verse number 3 with me. And look what he says. The Bible says, And Pilate asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? Now, Pilate asked that, said, Are you the king of the Jews? Let me ask you something. Who's the Son of God? Is it Pilate or is it Jesus? It's Jesus. Whose words are perfect and infallible? Is it Pilate or is it Jesus? Pilate says, Are you the king of the Jews? But listen to what Jesus says. And he answered him and said, Thou sayest it. We read the the fuller uh, picture of this in John chapter number 18. What Christ is saying is, Pilate, you know that I'm the king of the Jews. Pilate, you wouldn't be asking me, except you believed it. You ever had someone come up to you and just all of a sudden want to start talking about the Bible? You ever had that happen to you before? Somebody never talked to you about the Bible before? All of a sudden they pull a chair up to your desk, sit down, and they say, let's talk about the Bible. They say, i got some questions. You say, what is that, preacher? That's God working in their life. They've got some questions now. Pilate says, art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus says, you're the one saying. I'm the king of the Jews. I want you to notice first off that he confessed his person. He confessed that Jesus was the king of the Jews. 
He confessed by virtue of that that Jesus was the Messiah. Let me tell you something. You don't know a thing about Jesus until the Word of God pricks your heart. Oh, you may have a head knowledge. But you know what I find interesting? Pilate's trying to hide his head knowledge, but he can't hide his heart knowledge from the Lord. He's doing everything he can to mask what he knows in his heart. The Bible says that God doesn't look on the outward appearance, but looketh on the heart. And so as Christ looks within his heart, he knows what he believes. He knows what he's thinking. He's saying, Pilate, in your heart of hearts, you know who I am. The Bible says that no man can call Jesus Lord except by the Spirit of God. What the Bible teaches. You say, well, preacher, what about all these TV preachers? And their, their doctrine's all messed up. And they say that he's Lord. What, what John's saying is that no one can say it and mean it. No one can really make Jesus the Lord of their life but by the Spirit of God. There's lots of people who can call Him Lord. In fact, on that day when they stand at the great white throne judgment, the Bible says there's going to be many that's going to say, Lord, Lord, we cast out devils in Thy name. We've preached that. We've done many great works. He's going to say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. You say, what is He saying there? You called me Lord with your lips, but you didn't say it with your life. The only way we can really confess Him as Lord and acknowledge Him as Lord is through the surrendering to the Spirit of God. It's not through the energy of the flesh. It's not through the self-will. But it's only through the surrendering to the Spirit of God. The very fact that Pilate knows in his heart who he is tells me that God was working. I want you to notice the second thing. He confesses his person, but look at verse number 4. Then said Pilate to the chief priests and to the people, I find no fault in this man. He confesses his person, but he confesses his perfection. He says, I can't find a single fault in this man. The Bible teaches, says three things about the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. It says a lot of things, (laughs) but it says three things that are, are particularly interesting when looked at together. The Bible says that in him was no sin. You say, what does that mean, preacher? It means he had no sin nature, none whatsoever. Jesse Duplantis once said that Christ had a sin nature. He had to battle just like you and I. He said, well, you think about that, preacher. I I thought Jesse Duplantis was goofy before I knew he was a heretic, amen? So that don't upset me. It might upset you, amen? I don't know, but, but hey, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The truth ought not upset us. We find out something about one of these TV preachers that we've got all their, their books and all their tapes and the commemorative spoon set that they put out at their 50-year anniversary. We find out that they believe something wrong with the Bible. You say, what do I do, preacher? You just go on with the Bible. You just, that, that, that's where you find out where your loyalty lies. You go on with the Bible. I don't believe that Christ had a sin nature because the Bible teaches us that the sin nature is passed down through the Father. Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, and that all have sinned. It was through Adam that the sin nature was perpetuated through humanity. You say, what does that mean about Jesus Christ? The Bible teaches us that Christ was not born of Joseph. He was not born of an earthly father. Just as we take on the nature of our father, we take on an earthly nature because we're earthly. We're earthy. We're of the earth. He was the second man. He was the spiritual man. He was that which was born and brought from heaven. And He brought on Him. He took upon Him the nature of His Father which was a sinless and perfect nature. He says in him was no sin. The Bible says that he knew no sin. It means not only did he not have a sin nature, but he didn't have any inward and secret sins of the heart. Let me tell you something. If people could pry back our heart and look at the things that go on in there, there wouldn't be a one of us that wouldn't be kicked out of this place this morning. Oh, don't get all spiritual on me. You know that's true. You thought about killing somebody in this room since we've been sitting here, amen? It's probably me. <laughs> but Christ never had a, an inward sin, never had a sin of the heart, never had, never had a sin of the spirit, never had, never had a, a malice or a hatred in his heart. You say, what about when he drove them out of the temple with the court? That one hatred, that was righteous indignation and the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. He never had a secret sin. The Bible said that in him was no sin. He knew no sin. When I like this, it's so simple. And he did no sin. 
He did no sin. I don't care how many uh, Pulitzer Prize winning authors. I don't care how many Hollywood producers. I don't care how many infidel playwrights want to tell me that my Lord and Savior was wicked, was a fornicator, or was an adulterer. Hey, that ain't nothing new. Even in his day, they said we be not born of fornication. They were implying that he was a bastard son and a product of an illegitimate relationship. They called him a wine-bibber and a gluttonous man then. They're still calling him that today. It's not going to change anything. He did no sin. There was never a single moment where he veered or uh, wandered outside of the will of God. Never a moment when he gave in to the temptation of the flesh. Never a single moment when he wandered into unrighteousness. He did no sin. From before he was ever born to this day today, he's done no sin. He never has done sin. He never will commit any sin. Pilate said, I see that about him. I see that there's no fault in him. Notice the third thing. Look at verse number 14. The Bible says, we'll start at verse 13 so it reads fluidly. And Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, said unto them, Ye have brought this man unto me as one that perverteth the people. Behold, I, having examined him before you, have found no fault in this man, touching those things whereof ye accuse him. No, nor yet Herod, for I sent you to him, and lo, nothing worthy of death is done unto him. I will therefore release him, uh, chastise him, and release him from necessity. He must release one of them uh, at the feast. And they cried out all at once, saying, Away with this man, release unto us Barabbas, who for a certain sedition made in the city and for murder was cast into prison. Pilate, therefore, willing to release Jesus, spake again to them. But they cried, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And he said unto them the third time, Why? What evil hath he done? Notice this. I have found no cause of death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. Pilate confessed his person, confessed his perfection. But in a sense, I'd say this morning that Pilate confessed his propitiation. You know what propitiation is, don't you? There's two words in the Bible. There's an Old Testament word. It's the Hebrew word kafar. We know it as the word atonement. It means to cover. Cover. That's all it means. You'll find the same word is used concerning the the slime that was used to mortar the ark uh, of Noah. And the same word was used for the slime that was used uh, to cover the ark of bulrushes for little Moses. It just merely means a covering. Can I say that in a sense all that God could do was cover our sin in the Old Testament? It was always there. That, that true and final and righteous sacrifice had never been made. But there's a New Testament word, and it's the word propitiation. You say, what does that mean, preacher? It means to be washed away. The book of Hebrews chapter 10 says, Their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. The substitutionary death of Jesus Christ was being acknowledged by Pilate. He said, this man doesn't deserve to die. Now, at that time, Pilate was hoping he wouldn't. But don't you imagine that in the days to follow, by the way, it's, it continued to prick Pilate's heart. He worried that he was going to come up from that tomb. He set a watch over that tomb. I'm, I'm thankful that to this day we can still watch that tomb and what happened at it. They couldn't stop him from coming up out of there. Hey, all the infidels in the world can't stop him. I mean, listen, all, all, they can try to rewrite the Bible. They can try to rewrite history. But it won't change the fact that on the third and glorious morning, he came up out of that tomb. They set a watch over him. Pilate knew. Don't you know, in the days after, he looked and he said, What did that man die for? Who did that man die for? Here's Barabbas, and he deserves to go to that cross. Here's Barabbas, he's guilty, and everyone knows it. Here's the Son of God. Here's righteousness in the flesh. I can find no fault in him. And yet, Barabbas was set free, and he went to the cross. Pilate knew better than most what the substitutionary death of Christ meant, for he had a hand and had a part in it. Can I say that it's a glorious day when a sinner realizes They don't have to die and go to hell. Somebody else already died on the cross for them. 
What a beautiful day when the sinner realizes he doesn't have to climb on that cross in his pride and in his self-righteousness and perish and die and spend an eternity in hell. For there's one that was perfect, there's one that was righteous, that went to that cross, that climbed upon there, that took their place so that they don't have to die and go to hell. We see his confession. Let me give you these just in closing very quickly. We see the caution that prepared him. We see the confession that proved what was going on in his heart. But I want you to notice very quickly the cries that prevailed over him. There again in verse 23, it says, The voices of them and of the chief priests prevailed. You know what it means to prevail? It means to win out in a contest. There was a voice that was speaking the heart of Pilate. But there were voices that were contending and contesting against it. Pilate had a choice which voice he was going to listen to. We know how the story ends. Though Pilate knows that it's wrong, though Pilate knows that he shouldn't, he sides against Jesus Christ and he sends him to a rugged cross. I'm thankful that he did, but for Pilate, he was held accountable for that action. And let us notice the cries. What was it that they said that changed his mind? Look at verse number 2 with me. The Bible says, And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. We see a cry about sovereignty in verse number 2. They say, Pilate, if you let this man go, he's going to make himself a king. Pilate, if you let this man go, he's going to rob your throne from you. Can I put it in today's mentality, Pilate? If you side with this man, he's going to take over your life. Oh, how many there have been that knew they were lost, that knew they were undone, that knew they were in need of salvation. But then all of a sudden the devil comes along, speaking through the bullhorn of the world, speaking through the bullhorn of other lost individuals, and says, you get that religion that they're talking about. You get born again like they're talking about. You won't get to run your life anymore. You won't get to do what you want to do anymore. It's going to be a prison to you. It's going to be nothing but a, a ball and a chain and shackles around your feet. wonder how many lost sinners have died and went to hell because they didn't want to let go of the reins of their life. You say, preacher, what do you believe about lordship salvation? I don't think anybody really said that. It's just you don't ask those questions and it's good for the sermon, so I have to ask them for you. You say, you, you preach a lordship salvation. I preach, that <laughs> I preach that Jesus Christ is the Lord. He's the Savior of all men, especially of them that believe. I don't think a sinner knows what he's getting into when he gets saved. I didn't. I don't think a sinner can look down the road and see what everything's going to mean. But I don't think a sinner can bow the knee and sit on the throne at the same time either. To make Christ their Lord and Savior, they've got to get off their throne before they can get on their knees. I don't believe you come to Jesus bargaining. I don't believe you come to Jesus wanting to share the throne. I know this, that when I as a ten-year-old boy came to Christ, People say, well, people don't get saved to keep from going to hell. That's wrong. Well, don't tell me that, friend, because when I got saved, I got saved because I was scared of hell. I wasn't coming to bargain. I wasn't coming to help Him save me. I was coming broken. I was coming helpless. And I was coming scared of damnation. I said, Lord, I can't save myself. Do that for me, which I cannot do for myself. Save me because I can't save myself. I didn't come and say, oh, Lord, I'll let you save me, but I'm going to keep doing this. Lord, I'll let you save me, but I still get to run things. No, when I came to Jesus Christ, and I came as a sinner and bowed the knee, at the cross of Calvary and accepted Christ as my Savior. Let me tell you something. Oh, He took over my life that day, but only because from that day forth there was a life to take over. Oh, He became the King of my existence, but only because I had a King to worship now. What I'm saying is this. Do you preach a Lordship salvation preacher? Hey, I believe He's Lord, and I believe if you get saved, really born again, you won't have a problem with that. He's had a cry about sovereignty. said he's going to make himself a king. Notice verse 5. The Bible says, And they were the more fierce, saying, He stirreth. Notice that word. He stirreth up 
the people, teaching throughout all Jewry, beginning from Galilee to this place. They had a cry about sovereignty, but they had a cry about stirring that they wanted Pilate to hear. They said, Pilate, if you let this man go, you don't know the kind of mess that he's going to make. You know the thing that Pilate was really scared of? He was scared of what most of the rulers in that day were scared of. In Israel, they were all tributaries. The Roman Empire was the power of the world. And those rulers only ruled because Rome let them rule. They had the same fear. Pilate had the same fear that Festus and Felix and Agrippa had. That if this man continued to cause problems, he continued to go throughout the land of Israel and preach the way that he preached, that pretty soon it was going to upset the Roman government. They were going to come down upon them. They were going to remove them from their places of authority, put someone else in there that could run things and keep things quiet. They said, Pilate, if you let this man go, you'll never imagine the trouble he's going to cause for you. I heard that voice. I'm sure you did too when you were under conviction. What's, what's going to happen when you get saved? What are your friends going to think about you? What is your family going to think about you? What are your co-workers going to think about you? Hey, if you give in to the Spirit of God, if you accept Christ as your Savior, it's going to make a mess of your life. It's going to stir up everything in your existence. You get religion and you change, you're going to lose all your friends. You're going to lose all the people that love you and care about you. And the devil comes along and says, don't let him stir up your life. You say, preacher, what, what do I do about that voice? Preacher, what do I say? I'm under conviction. I know what I need to do, but I'm scared. You've got to make up your mind that it's not worth dying and going to hell for anybody. I love my parents. But I don't know if I can say like Paul did, I'd die and go to hell for him. Paul, he didn't say it about my parents. Don't, you'll tear your concordance to peace trying to find that. But he said that about the nation of Israel. He said, I could wish myself accursed for my kinsmen according to the flesh for Israel. I love my wife. But I don't get mad at me, honey, but I don't know if I can make that decision. I love my little boy. But I gotta be honest with you. I, I don't, I, I don't know if I love him the way God loved his own son. I don't know if I, I don't know if I even love him the way that God loved me when I was a sinner. Could we really say, and I say this as a saved individual, I say this as somebody that, that is born again, that is redeemed. I don't know if I can say that about anyone. You say, preacher, what do I do? I'm scared. It's going to upset people. It's going to make problems. You've got to make up your mind if those people are worth dying and going to hell for. Let me tell you the right answer. The right answer is no, they're not. Nobody is. You say, he's going to make a mess of your life. No, the problem is your life is already a mess. You ever known somebody that that was how they, I mean, they were just so messy, just organized chaos? You know, that's kind of how the sinner is. Their life is a mess, but it's comfortable. They don't want anybody coming in and, and straightening things up. I've known people like that. You know who I'm talking about. You go into their office at work, or you go into their, you get in their car, and you just got to move mountains to get in there, you know? You go into their office at work, you got to it's like Marco Polo. Marco! You hear him, Polo! under a big pile of papers. It's just organized chaos. It's not that that's what's good for them. It's just that's what they've grown comfortable with. Let me tell you something. The best the sinner can hope for is organized chaos. The best the sinner can hope for is just a life that they can stumble and suffer through. And I know where you're at. You say, oh, preacher, I don't want God coming into my life and rearranging things. I don't want God coming into my life and making me get rid of my friends. Let me just clue you in on something. You really get born again, you probably won't have to get rid of them. They'll probably get rid of you. You say, preacher, I just don't know if I can do it. Oh, friend, that's because you're buried in it and you can't see what a mess you're in. You can see it the way God can see it. You can see it the way that God can see it. And you'd see that that organized chaos that you call life is nothing but broken pieces, nothing but burnt out dreams. That if you come to Jesus, He'd set things right and give you life that's worth living. I'll show you one final one now, hush. Look at verse number 18. The Bible says, And they cried out all at once, saying, Away with this man and release unto us Barabbas. Look down at verse number 20. Pilate, therefore, willing to release Jesus, spake again to them. But they cried, saying, Crucify, crucify. Look down at verse 23. And they were instant with loud voices, 
requiring that he might be crucified. I see a cry about sovereignty. I see a cry about stirring. But the last cry and the most prevailing cry I see is simply the cry of the status quo. They just kept shouting and kept shouting. And you know what Pilate said? He said, if all these folks are for it, how can I be against it? You know, the grand tragedy is this. And I, let, me, let me use a little sanctified imagination. Is that okay? I'm sure he could hear Jesus good and loud when he was alone with him. But now that the multitudes are crying, his voice is not as loud as it was. Can I draw a parallel? Here you are this morning, February whatever, 8th, February 8th, 2015, at 11.15 in the morning. Don't look. Here you are this morning in the house of God. The big old loud mouth, leather lung preacher is getting up and making a fool of himself, try to try to point you towards Calvary. Here you are surrounded by the voices of the redeemed as they sing praises to God. Here you are, in a few moments the piano will play, saints will be praying, the invitation will be giving. Can I say this morning that the voice is probably loud for you? The voice is loud right now. But here in a few moments, you're going to walk out those doors. And then that voice that's been speaking to you so clearly over the last few moments will begin to be drowned out by other voices. The status quo will begin to flood into your life again. You've got a decision to make. The old farmers used to use this adage, you ought to strike while the iron is hot. Let me say, there'll never be a better time for you to get born again than this morning here in a few moments. Say, preacher, you can't possibly... Oh, I have it on scriptural authority that today is the day you should be saved because God said today is the day of salvation. You'll have no better time than this morning. And I wonder what the voices will do in your life. If you're in need of Christ's salvation, listen to that voice. That voice. Talking, talking about that voice. Talking about that voice. The Spirit of God stirring you. Don't walk out those doors and die and go to hell listening to the rest of the voices.